morning, everybody. Uh, I'd like to welcome you back to our series we've been doing. is a series called Hope is Here. Um, we've been discovering the hope that we find in Jesus and also the hope that we find in one another as the church. And so I want to welcome you back. If, if you uh, caught last week's, we talked about <clears throat> hope for the weary. We talked about what happens sometimes when we just get run down. But today we want to talk about um, what it means to find hope if you've been broken. Um, that's probably something everybody in this room can, uh, can maybe uh, realize that that's something I know that I deal with on a regular basis, that things happen with people and they come in and they want to have conversations about their life, and it always begins with a story of brokenness, almost always. We talk about all the time about how families uh, are dysfunctional. Uh, Karen and I used to joke that if you look up dysfunctional in, in, uh, in the uh, dictionary, you'd find uh, family portraits of her family and my family. <laughs> Hers would be first, but mine would be uh, a, a close second. Um, so we've, we found out that hope is found in Jesus. This is not something anybody doesn't know, but oftentimes we don't understand how that works. So I want to start this morning and talk about how our life is incredibly fragile. We just don't realize it sometimes, just how fragile it can be. But because of our choices, um, relationship can fall apart. Um, we can lose a job, and again, things that we've done in the past can cause some serious brokenness in our life. And so um, there's nothing really worse, I think, than discovering or having your sin discovered by someone else. There's nothing that probably brings brokenness more than when you've done something, and then and it's wrong, and it's all kinds of broken, and then that thing gets exposed. And so I want to talk a little bit about that today. There was a woman in the scriptures, most of us know this story, in John chapter 8, about a, a woman who is um, caught in the act of adultery. So the, the story is Jesus is on his way to the temple. He stops and he's teaching the people. And this religious, religious mob, if you will, brings this woman before him. So let me just read John chapter 8, starting with verse 1, and we'll jump right into it. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Always, I'm always amazed that they only brought the woman. <laughs> There's a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst of them, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. So the woman in this story, again, most of us know this story pretty well. The woman in this story, is she's caught in that very act of adultery. She's brought before Jesus. And so not only is she brought before Jesus in her shame and her brokenness is exposed, but she's literally being used as a pawn with, from religious people to try to catch Jesus and try to hurt Jesus. So not only is she broken, she's being used at the same time. So um, this is really what it looks like for her. Think about what it looked like for her. A broken marriage, broken woman, broken reputation, and basically she had hit rock bottom. I try to imagine, and I, I, I don't know that we can fully imagine, what that must have felt like, especially in that context. It's bad enough it happens in, in the world that we live in now, but in that context, the only thing that she, she knew, the only thing that was coming for her was death. And so all of us, we've, it, it, we've experienced brokenness. And like I said, the most shocking thing about this story really isn't just the brokenness that she's discovered in. It's also that she's being used um, in order to harm Jesus. And so 
Um, it, this is an interesting thing happened to me in Kentucky. When I was a kid, I would go up and visit. My dad's from the Appalachian Mountains. I've, I've shared many, many stories. There's, a, there's no end to sermon illustrations when your family's from the Appalachian Mountains. <laughs> and my dad loves my stories, by the way, just in case you're wondering. He, he, acts, he listens to my messages, and he tells me, he goes, that's, that's exactly what happened. I'm like, yeah, I know, Dad, I was there. Um, so anyway, one time when I was in Kentucky, and uh, it was really cold. It gets a lot colder up there, obviously, than it does down here. And the snow was on the ground. And we would just go. Uh, there was a, like, a really long hill to get up to my grandfather's house. And when it was snow, everybody had to park down at the bottom of the hill because nobody could get up the mountain or, or up the hill. And so we would use that, and we would get on sleds, and we'd just go crazy. And we'd play as long as we could. Sun was shining. I mean, it was just amazing. But inevitably, I would get so cold, <laughs> my hands would get wet, and my gloves would get wet, and my fingers would start going numb. You ever had that happen to you? And so, I know it doesn't happen in Dothan, but other places that happens. And so anyway, I would go in. I always remember my grandfather had a, a, a stove, a coal stove. And I would go in, we'd take our gloves off, sit them near there, and we'd put our hands out like this. And it was, it was really interesting what would begin to happen. First, my fingers would start to tingle, <laughs> and then they would hurt. Like, it's like, ah, ah, you know, and you want to pull them away. But all of a sudden, that warmth, when that warmth began to, you know, the blood flow would go back, all that pain and tingling would go away, and we'd, you know, throw those wet gloves on and go back out there and, you know, try again. So our, our sin, our sin being exposed, like this woman, our sin is much like that. On one hand, it's horrible because everybody knows the truth. But on the other hand, it's horrible or it's good because everybody knows the truth, right? And so there's something about the exposure that, you know, we don't like that part of it, but there's, there's something about that that when it, when we get to the other side of it. It's a good thing. I had a, a Bible school professor who was also in construction. He said about salvation and about your sin being exposed, he talked a lot about how, you know, there's a, it's a narrow gate, right, and to come into Jesus. And he said, and, and not many people find it. But when you do find it, he's like, it's like squeezing through the eye of a needle, right, and it peels everything away and you start fresh and new. And he said, it's kind of like, he said, salvation and your sin getting exposed is kind of like hitting your thumb with a hammer, and then he just paused, and I'm like, I, I don't understand that illustration at all. And he goes, it really feels good when it quits hurting. And I'm like, that's a dumb, that's so profound <laughs> at the same time. Dumb and yet profound. And our sin is like that. And so what's really interesting about this, this woman was caught in adultery, and can you imagine the fact that she had completely lost hope because the only thing she had to look forward to in her mind was she was going to be stoned to death. So let me finish um, or uh, keep going in John chapter 8. It says, This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman was standing there in the midst. So rather than agree with what the law said, even though that was true and that was necessary, Jesus said he did something different. The Bible says he stoops down in the, and he writes on the ground. And there's lots of speculation. You know, I want, I, my favorite one is because we don't know what he wrote. And, and I think they, you know, he did that on purpose. But some speculation, my favorite was that he wrote the sin of all the guys standing around. <laughs> and I, I think probably all he had to really do was write adultery, and they were all guilty, <laughs> more than likely. 
because they seem to be fixated on this, and they didn't bring the guy with them who was probably one, anyway, I'm speculating a ton, and we have to be careful with that. But it was interesting um, what he wrote. I mean, we don't know. He could have written a scripture. We don't know. But what he did was he, rather than agree with them about the judgment that was lawful, he did something different, and he, he gave hope. And what was really amazing is imagine this woman hearing all of this. Her expectation from this rabbi was he was going to, you know, uh, point out the death penalty because he was going to protect himself. And Jesus didn't do that. He did something entirely different. But what was really interesting is how from the oldest to the youngest, the Bible said, and I always wondered about that. It's like, why, why, did, why did it start with the older person? And that didn't make any sense until I got old. <laughs> and now it, makes, now it makes perfect sense. I'm like, um, somebody's like, we should, we should stone him. And I was like, uh, yeah, probably we should. <laughs> we shouldn't, right? You know, like we sh- anyway, I won't go there. But, but that's kind of the thing that happens with us. When, when, they're, when they're pushed for an answer, they're pushing for an answer, they're like, you need to judge, you need to judge. Jesus obviously doesn't do that. And so the one person in the group who could throw the stone did it. And that's always fascinated me. That, and, but but always, I've always thought of that from the perspective of Jesus and rarely thought of what that woman must have felt like when hope began to dawn on her. Like all of a sudden, you know, in her head, she's probably down, her, her, you know, her face is probably pointed toward the ground. And she's probably, you know, resigned herself to her fate. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, you know, he flips the switch or switches the flip, however you want to say it. And all of a sudden, hope begins to rise in her heart. And so he goes on, he has a conversation. We're, we're going get to get to that in a second. But it's interesting because the church is designed to be a place of hope. Jesus came and he establishes a church. And the church is, it's, the Bible says that we're going to do greater things than he would, right, or he did. And so I always wondered about that too. But part of it is, is that everywhere we are, if Jesus is inside of us, Jesus is there. And everywhere Jesus is, hope is here. Hope is there, right? And so we get to, as the church, to, to pour out hope in every crevice, every broken place, every person that we meet. And we were talking a lot about this, that, that this morning, is how do we reach people who don't know Jesus? And one thing to remember is that as the church, we are designed by God to present grace and to present hope to people in the same way that Jesus went. So the church is a place of hope. Because sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's often collateral damage. It touches other people. And the important thing is not just that the sinner responds rightly to a shameful mistake. In other words, repentance, feeling sorry for something you did, of course that's something you should do. But it's equally important that the church responds rightly as well. And this is what's really interesting to me, um, that if we do this well, people, they get hope in the midst of their brokenness. Hope doesn't come after everything's been fixed, right? It's not where hope needs to come. Hope comes right in the middle of the brokenness. And that's really hard to do when you're judgmental, when you're insecure, when you haven't dealt with your own brokenness. You haven't admitted that you were broken too, right? So the church is an interesting place because it's just really, it's a place where all the broken people have come and they've found hope first, right? Uh, an old adage is, um, we're all beggars, you know, uh, we're all beggars telling other beggars where we found bread, right? So we've found hope in Jesus, and we get to tell that story. I always love, uh, my wife shares with people sometimes, they see her, especially if they grew up in church, oftentimes the pastor's wife is kind of uh, disconnected in many, many ways. And even in Bible college, I remember they told us, 
you know, don't get too close to the people. You know, there's clergy and there's, there's laity. And I'm like, but they always said it like this, there's clergy and then there's laity, right? They didn't mean to, but it's kind of the way it came across. And, and I understood what they meant. It's like, you have to be careful. You know, you have to, you have to you know, be a model and be a representative. I'm like, yeah, but you also should be a friend, right? And so what's fascinating about my wife sometimes is people, they start talking to her as if she's always been the pastor's wife. And, you know, she's, look how amazing she is. And she is in every way, I promise you, right? But she wasn't always like that. <laughs> and I know because I met her when she was 12. <laughs> and, and she met me when I was 12, and we, we were very broken people even at 12, and we, we broke ourselves even worse as we went through our teenage years, as most people do. But we found Jesus, and Jesus healed our brokenness. And now, when people say, they say to us, it's always funny, they'll say to Karen especially, they go, you just don't understand. And then my wife will say something along the lines of, if you only knew <laughs> how much I understand. And it's, it's kind of like the, you know, the movie where he says, you know, he's, the guy's getting mugged, the Aussie's getting mugged, and he said, that's not a knife, this is a knife. <laughs> so Karen's like, that's not brokenness, woof, this is brokenness, and if Jesus can heal me, he can heal you. And that's, we forget that that's what the church is. All of us have been there. And the only danger we ever have is getting to the place where we have forgotten our own brokenness. So we receive hope in the midst of of our brokenness. And, that, and when we acknowledge that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, it gives us the ability to, to have hope and to show grace. So Jesus is making a, a point here about grace. And the point behind this is that if, if you can't throw a stone at the woman, if you, if you like Jesus said, okay, the, fir- the first person without sin, or the person without sin, you get to be the first person to throw a rock. If you've been around a little while, your arrogance has kind of been worn off a little bit because you know how broken you have been and you know your need for grace. And if you're younger or if you're stubborn, <laughs> it may take you a little longer to admit that is true, but eventually everyone does. And I think as, as a church, if we can do that, when we're connecting with people, part of it is, is we have to stop expecting people who are not in Christ to act like they're, not, they're in Christ. You know what you get when you do that? You get religion. That's what you get. So we teach people rather than to be in Christ and to recognize that grace teaches us. It doesn't demand, it doesn't command us. Grace teaches us to say no to sin. That means that even in our sin, grace is there saying, hey, it's not okay that you've sinned. Brokenness has its own consequences, I promise you. And we've all experienced that to some level, some of us worse than others. But the point of grace is you need grace when you need grace, not before or after. There is no before because we all need grace. And when we pour that out as the church, what happens is people find hope in the grace that, we're, that is being offered. So let me finish this out. This is John uh, uh, 8.10. It says, When Jesus had raised himself up and he saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? I love that. Jesus is the only one who can say that. Think about it. The only one who could accuse is not accusing. So he's asking her, he's saying, if, based on what you now know about me and about the Father and about what I've come to, come to do, where are your accusers? So when you are broken, when you've messed up, when you have sinned royally, right, some juicy sin, whatever, the tendency is to hide it away. The tendency is to withdraw. The tendency, we, we call it ghosting, right? Like I'm hanging out with somebody and they're trying to find Jesus, you know, and they're walking and they're following him and they're doing okay for a, for a while and then they just have a, you know, a bad week or whatever and they just tank. Maybe they go out and get drunk or they go do something stupid and then they're embarrassed and they're full of shame 
and they won't talk to me. Because Jesus inside of me, this is what they're thinking anyway, that the God inside of me is judging them. And I have to be careful not to communicate that to people. What I have to be careful to communicate is the, jo- the God that's inside of me didn't judge me. He judged Jesus on my behalf so that he could give me grace. So how much more can I give them grace? There's this really interesting uh, uh, kind of juxtaposition in Scripture where um, in the early part of Matthew 5 and 6, the Sermon on the Mount, there's this incredible um, scriptures that talk about how, how we ought to be doing it, right? We, we, people call it the Christian manifesto, manifesto. It's like the law for Christians, <laughs> which is an oxymoron, right? And so one of the, one of the parts in the, in the Lord's Prayer is um, that, that I'm forgiven when I forgive those who are around me, right? Forgive those who trespass against, against uh, me. When I do that, I, I get forgiven for my trespasses, what, what Jesus said in that passage. But it's really interesting that later on in the New Testament, it says because Jesus has forgiven you, you can forgive. It literally turns it on its end. And the picture is this, that if we come into this mindset of I'm looking at people's sin and I keep seeing their sin and I only see their sin, I can never bring grace and I can never bring hope into their life. So all they ever get from me is judgment. And, and part of the challenge for the church world is that the enemy has taken advantage of every bit of that and every bit of broken and insecure Christians to use them to be judgmental into people's lives to the point where people won't respond unless they meet a real, mature, loving, godly Christian. That's what happened to me. The guy who, who led me to the Lord, he didn't judge me, but he challenged me. He's like, hey, listen, man. That's not okay what you're doing. You keep going down that road, some really, really bad things are going to happen. You're going to lose your marriage. I mean, he, just, he was super honest with me, right? He said, but I want you to understand that Jesus took every bit of that sin on your behalf so that you can be changed and you can be born again. You can start fresh. You can have new life. It's a beautiful picture. The truth is the first wo- word over us in Scripture is love that God loves us, that the truest thing about you is that you're loved by God. And that's a hard thing to remember because oftentimes when we're struggling with especially patterns of sin, all that we can see is our sin, which guess what that does? It just amplifies the sin. So I want to challenge you to just, when that's popping up, when you're challenged with patterns of sin as, as a new believer, as you're following Christ, to recognize that the only hope you have is to let God transform the inside of you so that the outside of you can be changed. So your hope is found in God. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. Isn't that good news? And then God puts the pieces back together. So I have some good news for you today, that if you find yourself broken, if you feel like you're surrounded by people who only want to throw stones, Jesus meets you here in this place, and he brings hope, and hope is here. But you have a choice to make, and it determines the future that you're going to live into. On the one hand, one option is to confess your sin to God. Say, God, I agree with you. It's what confession is. It's not, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You can say that all you want. But confession is saying, I agree with what you said about my sin. It's not okay. It's, it's separated. It's what the Bible says before we become believers. It's separated us far from God. So we can confess our sin to God, and we can receive his forgiveness, forgiveness and we can walk in new life. And here's what's beautiful about what Jesus did on the cross as opposed to what happened in the Old old Covenant. Because again, in the Old Covenant, uh, animals were slain. The lamb was slain, right? And and that perfect, beautiful, 
lamb was slain on your, in your place and on your behalf. But all it ever did in the old covenant was just roll sin's judgment back one more year. You're never completely free of sin. But that's not what Jesus did. What Jesus did is he came and he took away the sin of all mankind. So there's only two there's only two things that we can do. We can say, Lord, thank you for taking my sin upon yourself and giving me the gift of righteousness, or I can keep my sin upon me, and I can try to walk in self-righteousness, but I'll never live up to the standard, and I'll prove that the law was true all along. So I fall upon the mercy of God and say, God, I agree with you. I'm broken. I've messed up. I've blown it. But thank you that you paid a price I could never pay. And that great exchange happens when your heart is made brand new and everything opens up. I remember it happening to me and I saw the trees like they were lifting their hands in praise, the mountain peaks pointing to God, and I'd never seen that before. And my life turned around and the patterns of my sin, things that I'd been so ingrained in, I discovered I wasn't doing some of those things in, uh, uh, anymore. One of them was cussing. Like I was in the military and I was good at cussing. Like I pride myself on how flavorful I can be with my phrases, right? And I remember after getting saved, that began to change, and I, I just stopped doing it naturally. Well, it wasn't naturally. It was supernaturally. There are other patterns I had to work through and had to work to get those things out of, out of my way, but Jesus came, and he began to restore my broken life and restore my broken heart. So there's this amazing scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that covers this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. If you have trusted him, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. If you've trusted him, you've placed your trust on him to save you from your sin. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Brand spanking new. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I want to read you a couple of scriptures. These aren't, um, there's, aren't going to be up here, but I just want, to, I want you to recognize that all of this happened when Jesus, it happened in the past tense. It's already occurred, and it's available to you. All you have to do is take advantage of it. So there's just a couple of scriptures. This is Hebrews 9. It says, and it's a little bit lengthy, but I want you to understand how, how important this is. It says, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. That's important. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Remember in Hebrews, they're talking to people who are trying Jesus out. They're trying to discover whether this Messiah is really the Messiah. It goes on, it says, Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin, past tense, by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Another passage, this is John one twenty nine. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away, past tense, the sin of the world. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. This is 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Now listen, it, it's not okay to sin. Remember what, the, what Jesus told the woman. He said, where are your accusers? And she said, they've, they've left. God, there's no one here left. And he said, neither do I accuse you. And then what did he say next? Now go 
and stop sinning. Here's the thing. Without that change of heart on the inside, good luck with that. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can turn over a new leaf, and then it flips right back over on you when you're not looking. That's how that works. But with Jesus, he gives you brand new life. So he says, my dear, dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Now listen, we get the picture, and I've shared this before because I believe it's important, because if you came from a background, certain religious type of background, what happens is you think when this scripture says that Jesus stands before that he ever lives, another version says, to make intercession for you, you think that when you sin as a Christian, that now you have to get new forgiveness, and that Jesus is in heaven begging the Father, right, to forgive you of the sin that he has already paid for once for all. Now, do you see the logic in that, <laughs> right? So here's why that's super important. Think about the, what you're saying. I'm, I'm praying to Jesus because he's the Lamb of God, and he's sweet, and he's kind, and he's gentle, um, and he's meek, and he's all those things, but the Father is really angry at me. But now think about that for a second. Who sent his only son? Right? The Father. So it's not like that they, were in, you know, they weren't in cahoots with this whole thing. And it's important to remember that because this is what the Scripture is saying. He ever lives. The fact that he is alive is the intercession for your sin. It's past tense. It's already taken place. And the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead was proof that the Father accepted the sacrifice for all of your sin, all of my sin, past, present, and future. So there is no wrath for you because he poured every bit of his wrath for sin out upon his son on the cross. So what does that mean for you practically? That means, like we've read before in Hebrews, you can come boldly before the throne of grace for help in time of need. Why? Because your sin has been forgiven. But if you keep coming to him, say, God, will you forgive me? God, will you forgive me? You don't understand the equation. God's saying, I have already forgiven you, right? And we, we read this scripture, and Karen mentioned this before. Now it says to repent. Mark says this, to repent and believe the good news. Repent means to think differently. It literally means to take on a new mind and think about this differently. And what that means is, Lord, I understand now. That when I sin, if I sin, when I sin, I have an advocate with the Father. In other words, he is a permanent, he's permanently there. He sat down because his work was finished, which means if I sin, I can come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because that sin has been taken away, even the sin that you're going to sin tomorrow. Now, most pastors don't like that because the fear is if I tell you that, you're going to go out and sin tomorrow but I don't believe you are. And Scripture tells us that, and I've seen that proven as we preach grace. What happens is you say, and Karen said this again during the service, she's preaching my sermon, it's his kindness that leads to taking on a new mind. What happens is I realize even though I've sinned, God has not withdrawn his love from me. He's not withdrawn his favor. Now get this, your consequences can withdraw lots of things from your life, but God, even in that, will bless you even when you've been broken. I, I, there was a guy, uh, Andrew was telling me this, a friend of mine who's planting a church up in Greenville, just recently that they were connected with some people who had prayed for a guy who had cigarettes in his pocket and he had lung cancer and they prayed for this guy and he was healed. Went to the doctor and his, like Lawrence's testimony earlier, his skin was clean. There were a lot of people who didn't like that. But he brought it on himself as if you didn't bring 
the sin and the consequences on yourself. Right? Be careful throwing rocks. But even in the midst of I actually did this to myself, God's love is bigger than that. When we are faithless, Scripture said, He is faithful. Amen. So I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to read you a quote from an evangelist named Juan Carlos Ortiz. Expresses how the living in the reality of this hope of grace looks like. So he tells a story, and he says this. He says, watching a trapeze show is breathtaking. We wonder at the dexterity and timing. We gasp at the near misses. In most cases, there's a net underneath. When the trapeze artists fall, they jump up and bounce back to the trapeze. See the picture of grace. In Christ, we live on the trapeze. The whole world should be able to watch and say, look how they live, how they love one another. Look how well the husbands treat their wives. And aren't they the best workers in the factories and offices, the best neighbors, the best students? Look how this church loves its community. That is what it means to live on the trapeze, being a show, a showcase. Another version says, trophies of grace, right? Being a show to the world. What happens when we slip? The net is surely there. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ has provided forgiveness for all our trespasses. Both the net and the ability to stay on the trapeze are works of God's grace. But here's the thing. Just because the net is there doesn't mean that when we fall, we can lay down and take a nap on the net. If the world was simply watching us sleep on a safety net, they might doubt that we are trapeze artists at all. Isn't that a beautiful picture of grace? And so what does it mean to lean in, to let grace, the Bible says that grace will teach you to say no to sin. Sin is missing the mark. We always think of it as gross sin, things that we can identify. We call this sin. Oftentimes our culture changes that. What we called gross sin 100 years ago is not gross sin today. But all sin, no matter what it is, is it's a missing the mark of what God intended for your life. It's missing his best. And the Bible says that grace is for the fact that sometimes you are learning and growing and learning how to hit the mark. And grace is there for even though you're not hitting the mark at the moment. His love and his favor and his kindness will never leave you. And that's what he said. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will not leave you as an orphan. I will come to you. That's the promise he makes. So I want to close this morning and I want to invite you with your broken pieces and all, to believe that God can make something beautiful out of something broken. I want to invite you to trust this community, this church that he's placed you in, to offer hope to one another and to live out this wonderful, grace-filled life together. And I want to invite you to let God put the pieces back together in your life. Psalm 147.3 says that he heals the broken heart. He just doesn't put a balm over it. He doesn't just cover it up. The Bible says he will literally heal the brokenhearted places and he'll bind up your wounds. But all that starts with becoming a new creation if you've never done that. Mark chapter 1.15 says the time has come. Jesus talking about the kingdom has come. It's, the kingdom has come from heaven and it's come to earth in the form of who Jesus was and he was making that announcement that heaven and you have now met. And this morning that's what happens, is what's happening right now. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. 
repent, to take on a new mind, to feel, to recognize that your brokenness and the consequence of your sin, they're not good and they're not getting better, they're getting worse. And if we hide them, they're never going to get better. Now, I'm not telling you to go confess the world. Please don't go home and put all your sin on Facebook, even though a lot of people do without knowing it, <laughs> right? Don't do that. That's not necessary. But confess your sin to God. God, this is this is what I've done. If there's something that's been holding you back this morning, especially if you're a believer, you feel like something is anchoring you to your brokenness. And Dave shared that this morning, this word about letting go of that. Even when it's taken off, he was talking about how we walk stooped over because we have taken on the identity of brokenness. And Jesus doesn't want to, he doesn't just want to heal you. He wants to take away, all, of course, all the things that have broken you, but he wants to remind you that you are no longer broken. And that's how you have to see yourself. will not you stand with me? I'm going to close and just pray. If you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, um, this is where it all begins. It begins with a change of heart that happens on the inside, that from that change of heart on the inside, that all the brokenness gets to go away. Jesus said it like this. He said that if you clean the inside of the cup, the outside of the cup will become clean. But if you don't do that, then the best you can hope for is what made him so mad about religion. That on the outside they were beautiful, looked like cemeteries with flowers and marble and all the beauty of it, right? But on the inside, he said, was full of decay. And too often that's been the case in the church. And I just want to invite you this morning. If you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, I want you to, you can just pray with me. There's no magic in the prayer. Um, It's not a special prayer. What's magic about all of this is a genuine heart of brokenness that says, God, I just really, I'm, I'm tired of hiding behind this stuff. I'm tired of the shame. I'm tired of the judgment. I'm tired of all that. And I just want to be free of that. And you are the only one who can do that. So if that's you, I just want you to pray with me. Jesus, I come to you and I say thank you for what you've done on the cross. Lord, thank you that you didn't just cover my sin, but you have taken it away. And Jesus, all I have to do is put my trust in you and believe what you have done on my behalf. So Jesus, I do that right now. I repent of my sin. I ask you to come into my life. I want to follow you. Jesus, change me from the inside out. In your name I pray. Amen. And this morning, if you are a believer here and you're struggling with brokenness, I think there were several words that came out in the beginning of our service. And I just want to remind you, that was for you. It's really challenging to come up here and share. Dave even came to me because I really don't want to do this. I, I'm not always like being in front of people, but I feel it's so important. And so if that word was for you, we're, in just a minute we're going to have people up here who would love to pray for you. If that word was for you, would you just come up and let Dave and Val, let one of our other leaders, let them pray for you. Let them minister to you, especially if you are that one who's broken over and bent down, even though you know your sin's been forgiven and been taken away, you're still walking with that identity of brokenness. We want to pray for you. We want to lift that off you in the name of Jesus, and we want to see you free. Amen? If that's you, as we close, um, our team is going to be up here. We'd love to pray for you. If you're online and that and you, you feel that is for you, just go to dothancf.com, our website, click on prayer, and we would love to pray for you. Someone will get in touch with you. Thank you guys so much this morning. Next week, we have a really fun time. Uh, Diane Bledsoe, Bledsoe, soon to be Diane Mitchell, is going to be preaching. 
next week, our, our series, so definitely come back for that. And don't forget to invite your friends. This is Back to Church Sunday for the next two Sundays, so definitely invite somebody. And let's pray for Diane. I know she's going to have a good time, but let's definitely pray for her. She's going to have fun, and she's going to preach to us. Thank you, guys. Have a wonderful weekend.